Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our resident missionary, David Pear, as he brings today's lesson. I can't tell you how many times that the thought has crossed my mind. Even though I try to live the Christian life, I wonder if it's effective. And I, and I wonder if I'm thinking that how many others might think, am I just doing enough? Of course, I know how this thing works. Works don't get us to heaven. But to live the Christian life, works have everything to do with our faith. Do you want to go to heaven? I know you do. Are you ready to go to heaven? I know you are. Of course, naturally, we have questions in this life about what if and what about our family and how about this? And that's why as Christians, we look forward to heaven, though we make preparations in this life for the unexpected. And we do our best. But how many of you have questions about whether you are living pleasing before God, and if God is, finds you in an acceptable manner. I know from time to time we all naturally have questions. And so it comes down to love for God and sharing our love with others. Because as you know and I know, the Lord Jesus said, that the two greatest commands, the greatest is thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second unto it is likened, uh, the second is likened unto it, thou shalt love your neighbors yourself. Upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we strive to be in this world boils down to love for God and love for others. I've been asked to speak on the subject developing an evangelistic heart. And I think that uh, although this lesson may come from a completely different approach, I think it lies at the heart, pun intended, of the subject about developing a heart that is evangelistic. I think in light of the text that was written that tells us about the coming judgment day that is promised by the Lord God. And it is specified a few times in this text how that we look forward to it. And since it has happened, there are certain, since, since it is promised and since we look forward to it, then there are certain things that we need to be reminded and, and remember and to focus on in order to enhance our faith. And of course, if, you're, if you've been a Bible student for any short measure of time, you know that God wants more than just outward action. He wants it to come from the heart. Because that's where it begins and that's where it ends. And everything we do stems from the heart. <clears throat> I'm reminded, or I'm, I think it's interesting how 
that Peter in his books, First and Second Peter, tells us uh, and uses the word remember or remind or a reminder. He uses that several times. And the reason why that's interesting is because it tells us that sometimes as Christians we need to be reminded of things. Even those who've been in the faith, been a Christian for decades, sometimes you forget. Maybe some first principles, some elementary points, some verses that we, we may learn as kids and, and sometimes we just get away from the basics. And so Peter says, this is a reminder Developing this, this idea of, of, uh, uh, of the lesson centered around how to develop a, an evangelistic heart, I want to give you three points, and they are on the outline. And that is this. An evangelistic heart is developed in the first place by remembering God's loving character. As I said, from the heart we look to God and, and, and He directs all that we do. If you ever want to know, what do I need to do in this life? You remember the bracelets? What would Jesus do? There never was a bracelet. What did Jesus do? Because if we want to know what Jesus would do in this situation or that, all we have to do is look at the scriptures to see what he did do. And that would determine what he would do. What did Jesus do? And so when we look at Jesus, when we look at the Lord God, we see automatically how we ought to live. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, Be ye holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. And that's a quotation from the Old Testament. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus says, What father, what son, or what, what father when his son asks for bread, he gives him a stone? Or what, what father when his son asks for a fish, he gives him a serpent? If your earthly fathers know how to good gi gi give good gifts, say that five times fast, then how much more does your heavenly father know how to give good gifts? Well, let's work in the back, backwards. If your heavenly father knows to good, good and fantastic gifts, how ought every earthly father should strive to do the best we can as fathers to give the very best because God gives the best. When we remember God's loving character, we can't help but to press forward as Christians, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been through, no matter what we feel like, we press forward, we press on. God is the example. God is the goal. God is the path. God is the measurement by how we're doing in the text, we learn several things about God. For example, God measures time differently than you and me. And I think this is just both humbling and fascinating. And, and time will not allow me to tell just how fascinating this is that, that God sees us today and Joshua yesterday and my grandchildren that haven't been born. That is fascinating. And yet, at the same time, it's humbling because I have no concept of seeing beyond, you know, it's, uh, it's getting to be lunchtime real soon. I enjoyed breakfast this morning, but lunch is coming around real soon. That's my concept of time. To see beyond Generations and, and, and ages is humbling. 
God, number two, is more judicial than us who are impulsive. Speaking as a father, my kids mess up just like I messed up when I was a kid. And as, they're, as, as, as the divine appointed implementor of punishment and retribution and judgment and also grace and mercy and kindness, I do the best I can. And I try to be judicial, but yet merciful. But you know what? God gets it right every time. And every time God acts, whether in a, in, in a, in a sense of judgment, you at the same time see divine grace. And that also is fascinating and humbling because I can never measure up to such wonderful character uh, of God. Number three, God is patient. Oh, man, I, as I already mentioned, I, I just can't wait for lunch. Uh, no matter what, to, I'm, like, I'm like the Hobbit in, in whatever the Hobbit movie is. And the, 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 the Hobbits, they say, well, what, what about breakfast? We already ate breakfast. Well, what about second breakfast? You know, I can eat breakfast any time of the day. And this is the second illustration I know I've given about food, which tells you exactly what is on my mind. So sometimes I get impatient, don't you? I remember uh, Brother Greg Collins, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I remember he said something to the effect of, if you want to learn patience, get in the longer line. I'm try- I, I don't know. I don't know. It's going to take me a long time to just do that. I, I just can't find myself to get in the longer line. Someday, maybe I will, and I'll call him up and say, man, this is fantastic. I'm actually learning patience. But I can't wait to learn that lesson because, see, I'm impatient. God is patient. And this verse of number nine, which we will come back to, is, is, is very, again, fascinating because whereas I'm impatient, the Lord is very patient. Not as I would count slackness, slow, slowness, impulsiveness. God is much more judicial and patient to give everybody an opportunity, a window of hope, a measure of grace, another day to come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to repentance. Number four, God maintains his integrity. I don't mind telling you, you know, we all know we shouldn't make promises. You know, we we know the Bible says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. I've only made one promise in, in, in my life that I remember to my children or to my older daughter at the time. All, all during her very small years, she would, she would tempt me with, hey, Dad, you promise? You know, it, it could be anything. Hey, Dad, can we go to get ice cream? Or what? Hey, you promise? You know, Dad doesn't promise. You pinky swear it. We don't do that either. Because let your yes be yes. You know, you know, I was a good little preacher. You know, just, just a preacher dad. You just, just do what's right, right? Well, it came time to move into a certain state, and, and uh, you know, we just we talked about a treehouse and, and just had to have it and, and, and just had to, you know, just have that and, and build a relationship, do it together. And, and uh, I said, you know, we're going to find a house with a good tree, and we're going to build a, a treehouse. And I was so set in my mind that it was going to happen, and I made a promise. And guess what? All the properties we looked at with nice trees, we couldn't afford them. Well, we found a good deal with a, with, a, with a property, and they had no trees. And my humanity, my frailness, my, my coming shortness began. 
and the promise that I've never recovered from yet. God keeps his promises. And the word promise or promises is found a couple of times in this whole chapter, which tells us something about God. So, first, if you want to have an evangelistic heart, you must remember God's loving character. In the second place, developing an evangelistic heart involves God's, uh, remembering God's renewal promises. As I said, the word promises is found a couple of times in this chapter. And so this is one of the key words in, in, the, in not just the text, but this chapter regarding count on God. You can count on God. God has said things in the past. He's saying things now he, about what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he will do in the future. God honors and keeps his promises. And the old adage that we always hear, you can take it to the bank. Dad with his treehouse, eh, not so good so far. But God's promises, now that's something. Consider God's renewal promises in the past. And for this, I'm going to do an exegetical no-no and leave the text. Let's back up to verse 4 where God references an event in the past when he says, uh, the Bible says... They, it's talking about the scoffers in the last days, they will follow, uh, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. In times past, God said ahead of time, before it ever happened, there's going to be a flood. I can imagine. Noah says, what's a flood? Well, it's where a bunch of water comes uh, as rain falls on the ground. Well, what's rain? Well, it's when water falls on the ground and uh, from the sky, and, and also it'll bubble up from the ground. Uh, I mean, it'll shoot forth from the ground. And uh, if you were to take all the water off the globe, you've seen this maybe before. You see the 60,000-mile uh, mountain range all around the globe that when you're looking at a globe without water, you see it looks like a baseball because of the mountain range that looks like a seam. Water came up, burst forth from the ground, the Bible says. You see, God promised that ahead of time. And it happened because God and his renewal promises is something to behold. We all know that the flood was to bring judgment. But also it was a measure of grace. For Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The first time the word grace is found in the English Old Testament. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 9. It was a judgment to those who would not obey, and it was grace to those who did. You see, God is judicial. Judgmental? Not, that doesn't have any emotional attachment that we use the word judgmental today. God brings judgment and brings grace in the same event, and he does it every time. 
Wow. A future judgment is coming. And this is, spills out from this text. That there's a day coming. God has set forth a day. And what's the purpose? To bring judgment. And, oh by the way, to show grace. To bring judgment against those who know not God, who have obeyed not the gospel of God. In the words of Second Thessalonians 1. And showing grace to those who have obeyed. The text over and over and over again describes these words. The heavens will disappear. The elements will melt. The earth will be burned up. Spilling out from this text is that everything we know, everything we see with the eyes, hear with the ears, touch and taste, which, by the way, scientifically is the empirical knowledge and how we have science. It's what we see and hear and feel and taste and smell. And I think I got them all. I tell you, naming a list out of memory is like naming the seven dwarves. I can name six and I can name them again and come up with six. But I can't remember the last one. But you know, the empirical knowledge, all of those five things that we observe, it's all going to be gone. My father-in-law, in lesson after lesson, he would illustrate, he would say, you know that $1,000 you owe me? Nobody owed him $1,000. Well, just keep it. Don't worry about it. If you knew the Lord is coming back in five minutes, just don't worry about that money you owe me. Don't, let's not worry about the money I owe you. It's just, you know, it's just gasoline for the fire. If you think about it. Now, uh, I can't leave verse 10 without addressing something just for, just for a moment. There, there's a translation. Uh, uh, by the way, one of the most fantastic, best assessments of translations ever I've heard from your preacher years ago. When he said, and I'm going to try to quote it. I think a translation's great. Everybody ought to have 10 of them. That's the best way to get to the idea of what, what the original is saying without ever knowing the first Greek or Hebrew word. But there's a translation that, that it has been presented. And in that translation, it's called the New World Translation. It has at the end of verse 10 that, that it will be discovered. Now, it just so happens that no other translation has that that assessment, they all describe it being burned or, or uh, uh, melt or, you know, something like that. But this one translation has the idea it will be discovered. Well, number one, we know what that means because, I mean, it, it can't be something totally different because there's all kinds of phrases and, ver and, 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 and words in this, in this text that tell us something about burning and melting and disappearing and, and being, uh, you know, on fire, heat. What does discovered mean? Well, it must have something to do with fire. You can't take a word, rip it out of its context, change the meaning and say, oh, I'm going to build a doctrine based upon this word that has nothing to do with the text. But it just so happens I don't have a problem with the word discovered. Because if you think about it, the very purpose of this world is temporary. And when we understand this life in perspective of God and his renewal promises, then we understand and can discover the very purpose of this world and all that we see and hear and do and touch and taste and whatever.
And the purpose is that we discover is it's not going to be here. Because there's a day coming. Just like we said that uh, renewal promises bring judgment, renewal promises also bring grace and peace. At the very last verse, we have this idea being said that according to the promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That sounds warm. That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to go because heaven is a place that, it, that, that truly warms the heart, that, that stirs the soul, that no matter what we experience in this life, there's going to come a time when everything will be better. Everything will be made right. Whether everything will be made right, we'll have the peace of mind that all the wrongs, it doesn't matter. I'd sure like to have that in this world. A little bit more of the, of the, you know, just let it go. Just, just let it go. Focus on what's right. And so by remembering God's renewal promises, it helps us to develop that evangelistic heart. Some of you may be thinking, well, I've never heard. I, I thought you, in, in talking about a, developing an evangelistic heart, I thought you would talk about Bible studies and, and door knocking and, and, and other such things. But let me tell you, before you ever teach somebody the gospel, you've got to make sure that you are living the gospel. Because there's no greater turnoff, in my judgment, to coming to what I have is if I'm not living what I have. If the person out there is more happy, I've just said an English no-no, I'm sorry. If the person out there is happier than me, well, something is wrong. If they're more joyful than, than, than me, then maybe something is wrong. If they are more content than I am, then something needs to be fixed with me and my theology. Now that's a preacher word for my understanding of God. And so I need to make sure that I am becoming like God's character. Actually, I'm getting into the application. I want to get to point number three. But I just want to do a little transition here that uh, we're, we're talking about what it takes to develop an evangelistic heart. And here's the third one. We can do that by remembering, in the third place, God's expectation. In other words, what does God expect for us to do? Do you remember the very first question? Have you ever wondered if, if you're on the right track? If you, if, have you ever thought, is, is God pleased with what I'm doing? Well, let me tell you what God expects, and it's twofold. Number one, God expects us to live right. God expects us to do our Christian duty. In baptism, we have made a covenant relationship with God. Meaning, we've made an agreement that we can't back out of, not without serious problems. We can break the covenant, but who wants to break a covenant? So, in the words of Matthew chapter 5, ye are the light of the world. And so God expects us, verse 11, and by the way, you'll notice that three times... In verses 11 to 17, the phrase, 
since these things. Verse 14. Since you are waiting. And verse 17. I think that's the right one. All of a sudden, I don't see it in my translation. Maybe I have the wrong verse. But there's another, there's another time where, where, where Peter says, since these things. So that, that stands out that here are three things that God expects. Since there's a certain day coming, you need to be living holy and godly lives. The word holy, that's what we think, holy. And we throw that a word, the word around like we understand it. The word holy is a simple word. It just means separate. Here's what the world is. Here's what we ought to be. It's separate. We can't leave the world, else we would have to, you know, get on a spaceship and go to Mars or something. We can't leave the world, but we better not live like the world. We live in the world, but not like the world. That's what it means to be holy, separate. If your peers cannot tell the difference between you and someone in the world, you're not living holy, separate. And something's wrong. Number two, we need to make every effort to be spotless, blameless, and pure. Now, that's hard to do. Let me set your mind at ease. That does not mean make every effort to be perfect, sinless, because that's not going to happen. I'm glad that God, through the Lord Jesus, has a plan for all of us, and that is when we sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is a propitiation for our sins. That's another big jawbreaker of a word, propitiation. And other translations don't do any help when they say expiation. Like, what in the world is that? And it simply means substitute. Jesus is our substitute. I sin, therefore I'm worthy of death. But thanks be to God, I don't have to die because Jesus is the substitute. He's the Propitiation, the expiation, the substitute, the replacement. Thank you, God, that I have a substitute who, when I sin, God sees his blood. We mess up. Yes, we do. You know what's interesting? This idea of blameless in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8 is talking about that day of judgment. And it says of the Christians at Corinth, which is just, just amazing. And I'll tell you why. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8, Paul says that at that day, the judgment day, we will be found, or he says they, they will be found blameless. And what is, what is just amazing is that if there's any Christians who ought not be worthy, that's not how things work in Christianity, being worthy, because we'll never be worthy, but, but in, our, in the way we think, if there's any Christian that's not worthy, you know, ought to be X'd out of the book of life, it's the, those crazy people at Corinth that did sin, they permitted sin, they were backbiting, they were carnal, they were following each other, various, you know, they divided, they, they uh, you know, political, they just did all kinds of things, they were messed up. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, you're sanctified. What? By the way, we say holy is to be separate. Sanctified is to be separate for God's holy purpose. Adds a little spin there. To be separate for God's holy use. And then in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, you will be, you, you will be found blameless. 
Now that is amazing. It tells us that though we have spots and sins and stains, on that day, God looks at us as if we've never sinned at all. Wow. That's amazing. And verse 17 tells us we need to be on guard. In order to live the Christian life, in order to do the Christian duty, in order to be the light of the world, a city set on a hill, we must live holy and godly, be found spotless, blameless, and at peace, and be on guard. Every day we have to be on guard against Satan, that roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. We need to continually resist the devil so that he will flee from you. James chapter 4 and verse number 7 or 8 or 9, somewhere in James 4. And then lastly, you know, I can't leave, I can't, I can't tie up this lesson without returning to verse 9. That key verse that is stated a lot of times, talking about God's patience and how God is not slack or God is not slow as some men count slowness or slackness, but is long-suffering. You know why that is just a hidden gem? I don't know if Mike still does it now. Uh, <clears throat> I'm just not that in tune and just not paying attention. But years ago he would preach a series, One Verse Wonders. I remember some of those lessons. I think this would be a one, one verse wonder. Because it's, it's kind of like th this verse is just there. When, when, Paul, when Peter is talking about the judgment day coming and, and yet we can't forgive verse 9 and all the all the gems and diamonds and precious stones that's, that's buried right here in this verse that tells us that there are people in this world that God cares about. And in us living our Christian life and being in our own Christian circle, sometimes it's easy to put blinders on. You know, like a horse that uh, you got to put blinders on to lead around fire because they get spooked. So you put blinders or along the road, you see horses with blinders on. That's so they don't get spooked by the, the cars. And so they've got these blinders on so they can see a long way off or at least to keep going the same path. Sometimes we put blinders on as Christians and we don't see who's around. But God says, take your blinders off. There's people around us and I care about them. And every day is a day of opportunity to win them, to influence them, to, to help them, to know the Lord, to, 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 to point them to God's loving character, to show them the renewal promises and to share with them God's expectation, which I said there were two things. One is to be the light. And two is to be the light house. There's some songs on the songbook. We know the purpose of a lighthouse. How would ships guide themselves along the shore without hitting the jagged rocks, damaging the ship, the goods, harming the crew, except there be a lighthouse at the harbor, so that the ships may navigate skillfully, carefully, thoroughly along the shore. As the light of the world and the salt of the earth, we as God's people 
help to preserve this world and make it a place that points people to God so that they too can be saved. I'm reminded in Jonah, you know, we think the lesson in Jonah is about Jonah who didn't go and he went. And that's not really the lesson, that's kind of the backstory. The VBS story is Jonah 1, 2, and 3. He's told to go, he runs. He's told to go again, he goes, he preaches, and woohoo, they repent. Woohoo. But the point is in verse 4, where Jonah gets a lazy boy and sits outside the city, props his feet up. God even provides a gourd, and he says, Man, I've got the front row seat to the greatest bonfire ever, and I can't wait. 39 days. 38 days, 37 days. I can't wait. We're getting closer. And God causes a worm to eat the gourd. God, and Jonah's so upset, he wants to die. And God says, and here's the point of the book of Jonah. Jonah, you're more upset over that gourd that you had nothing to do with making than for the souls in Nineveh. All of a sudden I realize, I'm the Jonah. I'm the one with the blinders on. I'm the one saying, hey God, save me. There's nobody else, just save me. There are others on the plane. There are others in the car. There are others at work. There are others in our social gathering that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are the lighthouse. Why? So that all may come. You may be thinking, how do we apply this lesson? What are you saying about an evangelistic heart and how do we develop one? Well, here's three quick steps. The first one has to do with God's character. You've got to learn about God's character. Any way you can do that, of course, that's centered wholly, wholly entirely around the Word of God. Read it. Study it. Learn it. Commit it to memory, but not just rote memory. You know the difference. You know, a child can regurgitate verses, but how much do they understand the depth? Memorize it. Practice it, but don't stop there. Teach it. The teachers in this world tell me that the best way to become a student is to teach. And I found that to be the case. When I'm preparing to teach something, it makes me, forces me to be a better student. Because you can't really teach something that as a student you haven't understood. And when you try to teach something you don't understand, you come... Real fast to find how deficient you really are. And so, how about teaching? Teaching privately. Number two, live, and this has to do with the renewal promises, live the caring, honest, and abundant Christian life that is separate from the world. In other words, it's one thing to learn about God. It's another thing to practice what you've learned. And thirdly, what good is learning about God and living what you've learned if you just keep it to yourself. 
I think it's the third verse of that VBS song. Hiding under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. If you want an evangelistic heart, it starts with learning God, living right, and sharing your faith wherever you are. That doesn't mean every conversation is a Bible study number one. I've got a Bible study. You want to, you want to study? There are lots of ways to have that conversation. And I tell you what, even just by maintaining integrity, which is being separate from the world, is a great evangelistic sermon. If you are raising godly children, you are a fantastic missionary in the home. And I tell you, Noah was not a f failure for not converting the whole world. He was a success for saving his family. I want to be just like Noah. Don't you? I know you do. In this text, we learn so much about how to develop and how to have that heart that desires to be evangelistic by its nature. And by applying these steps, we can be on our way to living right and helping others to do the same. Now this morning, I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know if you need to learn more about God or to live your faith more consistently. Or if you've got those two things down pat and you need to take the leap, we say leap of faith, which is really a, a, a Christian no-no. There are no leaps of faith like leaps in the dark. We don't walk by blind faith. But if you're ready to, by faith, by obedient faith, take the next step and be the lighthouse that God wants you to be, then my brother and my sister, let's make it together. God is calling you this morning through the gospel to take the next step of faithful living. Take the next step in development so that you can go from being the light, which we all need to be, to being the lighthouse, which we all need to be in one way or another. If you need prayers, we can pray with you. If you need to obey the gospel, we can certainly help you do that this morning, today, or any day. We stand ready. If you're living faithfully and need encouragement, we would love to encourage you. Just let us know. Walk down one of these aisles as we stand and encourage you with this song. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.